0: You can see we've got decorations that say home. And kids come home for college. And soldiers return home from war to be greeted by friends and family in their hometown. And even when kids move away to start their own families, they come home for holidays and other special events. And, And people sometimes expend great efforts to purchase their, their childhood home because they're like, oh man, this is the doorpost where me and my brothers and sisters marked all of our heights and all oh, those are the stairs where I broke my wrist. And so people will be like, man, we can't let that home, that house, get out of our, our family because this was home to us. And vacations are fun, but if you're like me, sometimes near the end of them, I start to be like, man, I just want to go home. And you're kind of tired of living out of a suitcase in an unfamiliar place and you, you long for the comfort and the familiarity of your, your own house, your own neighbors, you know, the people that you know, and to give back. And Katie and I often, when we get to the north, towards the end of a vacation, we'll say, well, that, that was really fun, but we're ready to go home now. Like, that was what we needed, but it's time to go back. Because we're guests in, hotel, in hotels, and we're kind of like foreigners staying in these places that we don't know, and you just have to figure everything out. And home is a, a place where we feel that we belong. We feel safe, and we feel known, and so we can rest there, and we can let our guard down. And for some of us, our childhood home wasn't a place of belonging. Maybe you felt like, man, my parents were always arguing and they're always yelling at me. Or maybe it, it just was a place where maybe siblings weren't getting along. It's like, man, that isn't the place where I can let my guard down. That's not a safe place for me. So perhaps you didn't feel safe and loved at home. You didn't feel at rest there. But we're all looking for a place to call home. We're all looking for a place of rest. We're all looking for a place where we feel like we belong and we're safe and, accept it. and we're looking for that place where everything is as it should be. We don't have to worry about things not being how they're supposed to be. And today we're beginning a series in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And Genesis, the word, means beginnings. It means beginning, and it's the book of beginnings of lots of things, the origins of lots of things. And in, in it we learn the origin of humanity, the origin of what's wrong with our world, and the origin of the nation of Israel, God's and people. And we learn in this book that humanity's home is supposed to be with God under his care, under his protection, under his guidance. And the, the image that's going to be used in the next chapter that we're going to cover next week is of a garden. Um, and so that's why our decorations are set up. We have this garden imagery, this home imagery to remind, remind us this is how God set it up. We're living in his creation. This was home, how the Bible speaks of it. And we But because, we'll learn in chapter 3, because of our rebellion against God, our home that we're supposed to have with him becomes the first broken home in human history. However, God puts a plan into motion to bring us back home. And that's what this book is all about. And that's why we named the series Beginning the Journey Home. Because God's putting in place this plan of salvation to bring us back home, to bring us back to be with him under his care and guidance and protection. And this evening, we're going to be introduced to the only one who doesn't have an origin or a beginning, God. God is the one responsible for creating our physical home, and it's only in relationship with him that we feel at home. And this week and next week, we're going to cover Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and those are all about how God created this world and created us to be our home with him. But as we get into this, um, Bible scholar uh, John Walton gives us a really important truth that we need to remember as we go through it. he says... This as we go through chapters uh, 1 and 2 of Genesis. Genesis is God's word written for us, but not to us. Genesis is God's word written for us, but not to us. That means it's for our benefit, but it wasn't written directly to us. It was written directly to a different set of people, but it was written for us. Well, who is it written to? Genesis written 1 and 2 was written to the ancient nation. Of Israel to show them that their God is the only true God. Over 3,000 years ago, God brought them out of slavery in Egypt so that they could worship Him. He saved them from slavery for the purpose of being able to worship Him. And God used a man named Moses to lead them out of slavery. and Then He commissioned Moses to write the book of Genesis along with the other first four books of the Bible as instructions for, to them about who God is and what He has done and who they are and how they're to live in light of all that. And so this Genesis is part of a book written to this group of people that just came out of slavery. And they receive these instructions as they're about to enter the land of Canaan, um, which is a land which is, you know, kind of where Israel is right now. Um, But it was a land that God said, I'm gonna give this to you. He said, I'm gonna give this to you. And they're at the edge of Canaan, um, about to go into this land after leaving Egypt. But the problem is, Canaan is filled with people we have all kinds of other dif- different religions and worshiping different gods than the God of Israel. And Genesis was written to this group of people as they're about to enter this land with all these people with different religions and different options to, to solidify their faith in God alone. And so this leads us to our big question, this passage answers, which is why should we give God alone our full devotion? Why should we give God alone our full devotion? Why should we give God alone our full devotion? And though Genesis is not written to us, it was written for us. So it can convince us of that same truth that it was convincing the ancient Israelites of. Why should we give our full devotion to this God, this particular God, this God that's revealed in the Bible, the God that the Israelites worshipped and that Jesus worshipped, and um, why should he be the one we give our full devotion to? And so we're going to walk through this passage, and then we'll return to that big question. So let's begin with verse 1. Verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And those pretty simple lines. uh, Everything finds its origin and its beginning from God. He created everything that exists. And then verse 2 tells us, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the word without form is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe desert wastelands and emptiness and chaos. It's like out there, that wilderness area, that's kind of what the earth was like, they're saying. And then void is used with that word and it's used in combination with like there's nothing out there. It's just this wasteland um, and it was empty. And so it's kind of picturing this disorder and this chaos. And, And for ancient readers, they would... Oh, what is this describing? Oh, they look out in the desert. We know what that's like. If I go out there, that's going to be bad news for me because that's empty of food. Life can't survive out there. At least I can't survive out there. And there was also this, he called this darkness and the deep. And the deep um, was the sea. And for ancient people, and even for us today, like if you sit on the banks of the ocean or the sea for a while, you're just like, whoa, that is a lot of power that I... Have absolutely no ability to control, and so for them, this the sea is like this chaotic place with all these waves and all these currents. And if I go out there, if I swim out there, I'm probably not going to survive. And I might not even survive on a boat. You know, imagine having even less technology than we have now. Boats sink today. Imagine having less technology and being like, I can't get out there. That's just a place that's dangerous for me. And storms too can come and threaten your life. And the point being made is that the earth was uninhabitable. And the, the rest of the verse says that the Spirit of God, his personal presence, was hovering over, over the earth, and sort of like a bird, like this, hovering over, um, over this chaos, ready um, for action, ready to do something and bring life from it. And now, I don't know about you, hopefully you're all the same as me, otherwise this might not make any sense, but when I imagine this scene, like, okay, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth without form and void. I imagine myself floating out in space, looking at the earth and it's this big round globe and it's without form and void is that kind of how everyone else thinks of it like it's just you know i'm out there in space that's like our view of what earth is but the original readers who read this most certainly would not have viewed it at all that way because you know how long have we actually known the earth was this globe and how long have we actually been able to see it from out in space i guarantee they didn't have space shuttles that they had this view of like look the round earth and that's what it looks like the earth for them when the bible talks about the earth was basically modern day middle east like the middle east that's like what they knew of the world they didn't know north america existed they who knows how much of Africa they knew existed? They knew Egypt existed. And they talked, they kind of knew like Spain existed. But if you remember in the book of Jonah, he goes to Tarshish. And Tarshish, we think, was in modern day Spain. And that, that's basically, like he's going to the ends of the earth to get away from God. That was like as far as they thought, like Spain. That's the farthest you can go. And so when we read this, we need to remember that God is communicating to this particular group of people in a way that would make sense. To them, and we have to kind of get in their imagination space. And so, I have this. ones over here. So I'll just hand this out. Emma, and Laurel, could you help me hand these out? This is just an image i found helpful. If you read through the Bible, um, you will find that this uh, there's interesting ways that the biblical writers describe um, the earth and the, the world. Um, so this image, like it, that's not a round globe, but it's like, okay, it's this flat thing. The earth is all the dirt and stuff down here. Um, and then you kind of have this dome over the earth that is the, the kind of like the atmosphere, but they wouldn't have called it the atmosphere. Um, and so the, this is how they saw things. And as we go through this passage, we'll refer back to this uh, a couple times um, throughout. But so God's saying, you know, the earth is like formless and void. And I was thinking this Lego table, you know, they're kind of viewing it as like, okay, it's like flat. They're imagining it being flat. They're imagining it being limited to this amount of space. And so there's kind of like other parts of the Bible talk about how there's like these pillars holding up the earth. You can see that in the image. Um, and so this is, the, this is just how people viewed the world in that day. And so this is the, the view of the world that God is communicating into. And if you think about, I mean... If God had communicated to us, I don't know, 50 years ago, like, I don't know when quarks were discovered, but we would have been like, you know, the smallest thing. God created that. God created, you know, neutrons and electrons and and, uh, protons. And then it's like, oh, sorry, 40 years later we discovered the quarks. So, okay, the Bible's wrong. Well, Well, no, why would God tell us about quarks? Why would he tell these ancient people about protons? They'd be like what are you talking about? It's like any time God communicates, it's going to have to be um, in a way that the people have time to understand. And so he, he calls it formless and void and kind of all, all this stuff. So it's kind of like imagine all the raw materials are just put out and it's like, okay. When I play with Legos, I bring them all out and now it's like, okay, here's all my stuff and I'm going to start working with it. God created that. And so as we move into days one through three, we're going to see things come out uh, of this. So days... Uh, Actually, 1 through 6. So the earth was formless and void, and there's chaos and disorder. Days 1 through 3, God brings that without form, and he forms it. And days 4 through 6, he brings the void, and he fills it. And so, days 1 through 3, God is forming the earth into a home able to be inhabited by life. And each day has like this similar pattern. It says... God says, and he says, let there be, and then it says, and it was so, and then it talks about what God made, and then God declares it good, and then he he blesses it, or names something, and then he's like, okay, and it was morning and evening, the blank day, there's kind of this pattern for every day, and so look at day one, well, let's look at day one to get the pattern, day one in verse three says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day, the darkness he called night and there was evening there's morning, the first day And so you see God said what do he say? let there be light um, and then it was so and then he sees that it was good and then he does something he separates it and then he says there's morning, there's evening um, the first day And the pattern continues and he declares makes the light declares it good and then he forms the heavens, uh, separating the waters below um, from the waters above. And if you look back at that graph, you can kind of see, like, there's that dome thing. The way he separates it is, uh, it says he makes an expanse. And if you uh, look up at the sky, you know, right now, you're going to look up and be like, oh, it's blue. And So if you're like an ancient people, and you don't know what's up there, What what's blue in the world? Water. And so, and where does... Water come from? Where does the rain come from? Oh, it comes from the sky. So look, there's the blue stuff up there, um, and it comes, and that's where the rain comes from. And so, I mean, he's communicating to these people and telling them, you know, all the stuff you know in this in the natural world, I created all that. And so they had, you know, and he's just working with their view uh, of the world at that time. And so, and you, they, uh, uh, there's kind of that dome on your piece of paper, and he's saying, like, okay, that's the expanse I made. There's these waters above, and there's waters below, and now that's separated. And so. You know he's kind of like so he started off to look at the Lego tab he started off with this okay I've made the raw materials and now he's kind of putting things together he's bringing form to this and whenever I play Legos I would like build a castle or build whatever um, so you build it you know you make the form to it and when that's when that's done then I take my little people this guy's crazy looking even see him, but uh, he's not re- he's not representative of any sort of ethnicities or something so those here. Uh, but but they uh, but it's like you build the thing, you bring form to it, and then you fill it, and that's what God's doing. And it's, he does these six days, three days of forming, building the castle or whatever, and then three days of filling. It. Okay, bring my people, bring my animals, bring my whatever. Um, and so that's day two. He's making the sky, and when he calls um, what's above, he calls it heaven. And then day three, God forms the dry land. He tells the waters under the heavens to gather into one place. And then the dry land appears once the once the waters move out. And he calls those seas. And then on those days, he also commands um, vegetation to come forth. And then he declares it good. Every single day at the end of it, he says, this is good. I've made this, it's good. I've made this, it's good. I've made this, it's good. And so days one, two, and three, he's forming everything. He's making the heavens. He's making the earth. He's getting the seas put in place and everything's getting formed and I won't take the time to build all my pieces here so it's going to still look a little um, chaotic and unformed but um, then days 4 through 6 in days 1 through 3 it takes takes care of the problem in uh, verse 2 that said the earth was without form and now in verses 4 through 6 it's going to take care of the problem that the earth was void it was empty and so day 4 what does he do? he fills the heavens he creates lights in in the sky um, so that he separates the light um, from the darkness and they mark seasons and days and years, and they give light upon the earth. And he calls one the greater light, and he calls one the lesser light, referring greater light referring to the sun, lesser light referring to the moon. And then he declared that good. And then day five, he fills the sea with all sorts of creatures. And then he fills the expanse of the heavens with birds and he declares that good. So he's filling things. So first he fills the sky, and then he fills the sea. Um, well first he fills the heavens and then he fills the sea and the sky. And then he commands all those things, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he declares that good. And then day six, everything kind of reaches its climax because more time is taken for these days um, and God is starting to fill the dry land. And he declares at the end of it, he says, this is very good. So the first thing he does on day six is he creates living creatures in the land of all kinds and he declares them good. And then in verse 26, um, things get really specific. He says this in verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's only one creature in all of God's creation that is made in God's image and likeness, and that is human beings. And so we have to ask, well, what does it mean that we're made in God's image and likeness? Well, in the ancient world, kings would make statues of themselves called Images And these statues would be made in their likeness. They would look like them. And they would place these in various parts of their kingdom. So when people came upon them, they would see, oh, this is the guy that rules over this particular area, this plot of land. They put these images like, this is part of my kingdom, this is part of my kingdom, this is part of my kingdom. And so for God to create humans as his image bearers in his likeness, to have dominion over the rest of creation means that we're like these living statues where God's saying this whole thing is my kingdom and I'm going to put these living images, these living statues saying this is my kingdom, this is where I have dominion, I'm the, the ruler over this place. And that means that uh, he says we're supposed to rule over and subdue creation. That means we're God's representatives. He gives us this commission to be over the earth, to be taking care of creation in the same way that he would take care of it and to take care of each other in the same way he um, treats uh other people. He tells us be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. We're supposed to live on earth as God's ambassadors. That's the living images showing this is who's king here and this is what what the sort of king uh, he is. This is what he looks like. This is how he treats um, animals. This is how he treats the creation. Um, and he says that uh, God's ambassadors are both male and female equally. And after the creation of humanity, he in he indicates that we've been given the plants, the earth, for our food. And then he says, this is all very good. So imagine we've gone through these six days of God creating. First, he forms it. We start off with this, you know, he builds the the, the place where he's going to do it, the, the, the earth. And then, okay, now he starts putting forms of it, starts building building a thing up. And then he puts his little humans in there. He puts bees, dragons, but the top and all this is Uh Alligators. You know, he starts filling him. He puts the plants in. And so he starts with the raw material and then forms it and then fills it with things. And then on day 7, something completely different happens. Let's read those verses again, starting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them... On the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. And so, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. God finishes creating, and then He rests. Does this mean He kind of got like you know, physically tired and needed to go hop in the lazy boy and grab some iced tea and uh, after a long work week? Well, no, God doesn't get tired. He's all powerful. I mean, the word rest indicates God, he ceased from his work, he's finished it, everything has been completed. And also in those times when a god um, would rest, it was often associated with temple building. People would build temples, and they'd be like, this is where the gods dwell, this is where we go to enter his presence. And the implication of God resting was, okay, the temple's been completed, and now he's going to come and dwell in it, and this means the earth um, is God's dwelling place where He is still present and where He calls people um, to worship and serve Him. And we'll see that God's desire to dwell with humanity next week, we'll really see an up close and personal picture uh, next week when we're covering Genesis chapter 2. And, and temples are holy places, meaning they're set apart and special. And God, uh, He blesses this seventh day and He calls it holy. And I'm um, setting it apart for His presence. And God doesn't only create the world for humanity to dwell in. His intent is that he would dwell with humanity, that he would be with us and present with us. And so he creates this home for us. And it's not like, hey, sweet, I built this home for you in this neighborhood, and I'm going to live in this other neighborhood. No, he builds this home, and we're supposed to be at home with God where he's specially present with us. And you'll notice that at the end of every other day, it said there's morning, there's evening, the the blank day. And every day except for day seven, And the implication is that day is never supposed to end. God's desire is that we would forever be at home in his presence. And both Jesus and the book of Hebrews teach that the seventh day was never supposed to end. We're all supposed to enter into God's presence, enter into his rest and be at home with him. And if you look at the very end of the Bible, um, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, um, it talks about God coming and dwelling with us of heaven and earth, becoming one Um, and God being present with us and dwelling with us once again. And the big question this passage answers is, why should we give God alone our full devotion? Why should we give God alone our full devotion? And this is the question Genesis 1 was answering for ancient Israel. God calls them to full devotion but in a world of other religions and gods and belief systems, they need to be told why they should give their full devotion to God alone because in that time it was fine. You should you should have multiple gods because you need this God to please the sea when you're having a sea voyage. You need this God to help you get pregnant because that's their, their fertility guide. You need this God to uh, help you with your crops to send rain and you needed multiple gods and so God is showing them, well, why do you worship this one God as you enter this land? Why shouldn't you pull some of these other ones and have them in your collection as well and try to be pleasing them? And we have the same, same need for this message because we have a world of options competing for our devotion. And we have even more religious options than the Israelites. And So why should we give God our full devotion? Well, first, it's because God alone created everything from nothing. Because God alone created everything from from nothing. And that's why we should give God alone our full devotion, because God alone created everything from nothing. This is what verses 1 and 2 are telling us uh, the reason we should give him our full devotion, because nothing exists that doesn't owe its existence to God. And nothing would exist if it weren't for God. Because of God there is something instead of nothing. And if it weren't for God, Um, there still would be nothing instead of something. God was there in the beginning, and things came into existence because of Him. And so it's because God alone is our creator, that means we are dependent on Him. We wouldn't exist if it weren't for Him. We receive our life from Him, receive our identity telling us who we are from Him. We receive uh, what we're supposed to be doing in our life and our purpose from Him. God is the one who knows what is good and is not good. He's declaring this is good, this is good, this is good, and so He knows the difference between good and not good. And so we need to go to Him to know is this good, is this not good, is this right, is this wrong. God is the one who knows all those things, and so we need to devote ourselves to Him fully, to if we want to experience goodness, we want to know who we are, where we came from. I mean, what we're supposed to be doing in life. The second reason we should give God our alone our full devotion is because God alone is God. God with a little g, because God alone is God. That's why we should give him our full devotion, because God alone is God. This whole passage of Scripture shows that the God whom the Israelites followed and the God whom Jesus worshipped is the only God who exists. The Bible's God is the one and only true God. And at almost every turn, as we go through this passage, uh, this description of the beginning of creation proves that the other gods of that time don't exist. They're false gods. Other creation accounts, uh, there's lots of them in that day, um, and this one is unique among all of them, and so here's some ways that this creation account is unique. Um, all the other creation accounts started with pre-existing material. There was something there, and then God worked with that material, but God in this account, God creates everything um, from nothing. He's the only pre-existing one, and in other creation accounts, the sea monsters and the sun and the moon and the stars were competing gods. They're, they're all things to be worshipped. The things of nature is like, whoa, these things are, are gods that we can worship. But God, in this account, he creates all of those and he tells them what to do. They're just things in his creation. They aren't competing gods with him. In other creation accounts, humans are created kind of as this afterthought to supply the gods with food or to do just their menial tasks they don't want to do anymore. But in this account... God creates humans in his image. Humans are created with dignity and purpose. And then they're blessed with, by God to partner with him and taking care of creation and cultivating its good potential. God supplies the humans with food, not vice versa. He said, look, I've given you all the plants in the field for you. He's not saying, like, okay, gather that stuff and come feed me. He's not dependent on humans. We're dependent on him. In other creation accounts, there's kind of this inherent evil built into the universe. Evil and good are there from the start. But God, the only thing he says in all this is good, 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 good. And then, very good. And in other creation accounts, there's this fight between the gods uh, that leads to the creation of the world. It's kind of like this thing that pops out from their fight with each other. And then there's like one God who ends up winning and he's kind of like the supreme God over all of them. But in this creation account, there's no struggle. Uh, It's just God saying, and then it happens. It's simple, and he's in complete control. And there's no explanation for where he, for he where he came from. And other creation accounts are like, okay, here's where the gods came from. You know, so and so died, and then a shellfish got ripped in two, and then that became these two things. It's like it's like crazy stuff to read. Um, but this is all like, no, God was just there, and he does, and he what he says, um, all of creation just obeys and does it. There's no tension and fight. And the point is, God. Is the only God, and He's in complete control, and He has no competitors and no rivals. And the third reason we should give God alone our full devotion is because we were made for Him alone. Because we were made for Him alone. This comes from the fact that we're made in God's image, which means we're ambassadors, and by definition, that means, well, we're not the king. We're ambassadors sent by the king, and that means that we're not in charge. God's in charge, and we're not. Life is not about us. It's about him. And as ambassadors made in his image, sent to represent his reign and rule on earth, our job as humans is to advance his agenda and to do his will, not to advance our agenda and do our will. And because we're ambassadors of his kingdom, made for him and not for ourselves, we should fully devote ourselves to Him as our King. And fifth and finally, because why should we devote ourselves to God alone? It's because in Him alone we find our home. Because in Him alone we find our home. And we saw this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It's because in Him alone we find our home. God created us to live in close relationship with Him. He created us to depend on Him, to trust in Him, to rely on Him for everything. And from Him we know who we are. We know what we're supposed to do, and we know our purpose. And for humans, you know, you hear that phrase, like, home is where the heart is? Well, for humans, home is where our God is. And if we live in line with how he's created this world, we're ex- we'll experience a sense of belonging and safety and security because it's our home is where our God is. I'm rescued from slavery in Egypt and about to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land with other religions and gods, Israel needed to be given confidence that their God, the God of this Bible, was the right God, the one they should fully develop themselves to. He had called them to full devotion in Him, and this creation story is telling them, this is why you should, because all those other gods don't even exist. And we, ourselves, just like Israel, also live in a land of other religions and other little gods that may threaten our devotion to the one true God. And For Israel, there are storm gods and fertility gods, and They have the gods of Egypt, and the gods of Canaan, and the gods of Babylon. And so let's ask, what gods compete for our devotion in our time and place? And there's at least, well, there's three. We could name many, but first we have the god of science. This god competes for our devotion. This god asks us to put all of our faith into the scientific method and its theories they come out of the scientific community. And to be clear, uh, science itself is not opposed to God. But when science becomes a God, that's when it starts to compete. Because after all, science is just observing the natural world that God has created. And in fact, the basis um, of scientific inquiry um, rests on the foundation that God ordered this whole world. It's orderly. It's predictable. It has laws. Like you saw that. that god formed it. There's no longer chaos. He formed it and he filled it. Now the universe operates with order um, and natural laws. And so we believe God has set up this orderly world. If things weren't predictable, you couldn't do science experience because things would just change every single time. So how could you ever even observe the natural world and come to any conclusions? But where science goes wrong is when it becomes a God of its own to people. When people look to science to answer questions only God can answer, then science has replaced God for those people. When science is telling us who we are, and where we came from, and what our purpose is, then has his God out of its place? Because those questions can only be answered by God Himself. And sometimes, it's kind of, sometimes people set up this either or. Like so people will reject the Bible because it contradicts science, or people will reject science because it contradicts the Bible. But we need to remember that God reveals Himself perfectly both through nature and through Scripture. God doesn't make mistakes. He reveals himself perfectly through both nature and through Scripture. And so if nature and Scripture seem to be in contradiction with each other, the issue is with us. We're interpreting one of them correctly because God has revealed himself perfectly through both these things, and so those will not contradict each other if they're interpreted correctly. And so the error is never with how God's revealed himself, but the error is with us as the interpreter, because all data needs to be interpreted, both in science and both in scripture, um, and sometimes we make uh, issues of that. And uh, Katie has told me many times that uh, she has perfectly revealed to her students that there's going to be a test on Friday. Huh? Put it on the board. Told them every single day. Friday comes. Here we go. We're about to take our test. And every single time, students will say, "What? There's a test today? You never told us that." And it's like, "Okay, yes, I did." So. Katie perfectly revealed it, um, but the issue was with the students and how they were receiving it, not remembering it, not writing it down, not paying attention, whatever it is. The error was with them, not in her revealing uh, that there's going to be a test. And so God perfectly reveals Himself, um, and He does so in a way uh, that makes sense to us. As we talked about, this is how the ancient Israelites saw the world, this little graphic, and you can look over it more in detail later, you can ask me about it, but it's like, okay, that's how they saw the world, so how does God communicate? Hey, I created everything that you know, well, he's going to use those terms, and he's going to use those concepts. If God wanted to reveal himself today, he'd use terms and concepts that make sense to us. He'd probably talk about evolution, and so so forth, and um, we need to understand that science, and what we know of the natural world, is always changing and expanding, and so we can't Expect God to be telling uh, the ancient Israelites about atoms and about you know the galaxies and and all all that stuff. And so, but one thing we can take away and apply from this is, when you read through the Bible, um, you see that the ancient Israelites were just struck with awe and wonder at God's created world, and led them. To worship God, they're worshiping Him for all this creation that He has made. Like, look at His power, look at His wisdom, look at how He's done all of this stuff. And so, um, for us, um, we should have even more reason to worship God and be in awe and wonder because we even know even more about the natural world, about the God, the world that God has created. So, the first God that competes with our full devotion to the true God is the God of science, and the second is the God of whatever. That's the only. That's the best name we could come up with. The God of whatever. Because this God lets you believe whatever you want, and do whatever you want, as long as you aren't harming others. He just wants you to be the best person you can be, and love others. People believe that this God basically loves everyone except for the very worst people, and that he just wants you to be happy. And people who believe in this God also believe that basically all spiritual paths lead to their God, and that all religions have the same basic message. Just love other people. That's what they're all saying. They all boil down to just love other people. You can just do whatever you want, believe whatever you want, just love other people. And, you know, and so people who believe in this God usually don't take their God too seriously because religion, you know, it's good unless you're too devoted to it. So i have this God I believe in, but I'm not too crazy about it. I'm not too religious so because that would be too much, like, kind of like moderation. And Genesis 1 speaks directly against this. There's one and only one God who created all things. And because he created us, we're morally accountable to him. He expects us to live in a certain way. He tells us to live in a certain way. And God doesn't tell the Israelites, you know, all those gods that people in Canaan are worshiping are really just different versions of me. And so it's okay if they worship them. In fact, you can just worship right alongside them. Go ahead and put your coexist bumper sticker on your car. It's fine. (laughs) This is the exact opposite of what he tells them. God tells them that the gods of other religions are false gods. And he warns Israel about turning away from him because it's going to have disastrous consequences. He calls them to love him above, above all else with undivided loyalty. And what's the first of the Ten Commandments? Who can Get a piece of candy if you can name it. Hello, Lord. Hello, Lord. Hello, God. Hello. First, of the Ten Commandments: no other, no, other no other gods besides me, and this is the foundation of that command. You guys are it's <laughs> same, you know, same gist, but it's, a, it's a, this is the very first command. And why should that? You know, they're about to enter this land, and this is like the summary of how they're supposed to relate to God. No other gods before me. What we're supposed to scrap all these gods in Canaan? We're not supposed to use them to get rain or you know have kids or whatever it is. He's like, no, no other gods before me. And the final God that competes for our full devotion is the God of me. The God of me. This God is really the one that drives the other two because if the other two uh, are true, it relieves us of responsibility. If science proves the Bible wrong, well, we don't have to do what it says. If all God wants me to do is be happy and that all spiritual paths lead to Him, well, then we don't really need to do anything the Bible says. Life is about us. We do what we want. We're not accountable to our Creator. And so these, the, the first two are kind of trying to relieve us of God having any uh, demands on our life. And it's easy for us to do this, to compartmentalize which parts of our life that God gets. We say to Him, well, I'll give you an hour and a half every Sunday and maybe a few others, other hours any time, other times that I can, but the rest of the week belongs to me to do what I want to do with it. And we wouldn't necessarily say it in that way, uh, but that can be our attitude at times. Like, okay, I'll squeeze in Sunday when I can or squeeze in other times with God when I can. Like maybe some of us have been going to church and been following Jesus longer. So we're like, okay, God gets more hours in my life, but does he get all the hours of my life? Because we're, he created us for him all of life, every moment, every day, every week, every year and your life belongs to him. As we see in this passage, all of creation does his bidding. Moon and stars go into place at his command. Sea separates from dry land at the instruction of his word. But we have the audacity as humans to tell him no. We have the gumption to give God a sliver of our life when he gave us our life. And parents, how well would it go over if your kids told you, you know, mom and dad, I'll give you an hour and a half for family dinner on Wednesdays, the rest of the week is mine to do what I want. That probably would not go over very well I'd imagine. And so we can ask ourselves this week, just think about uh, this question and pray to God, ask God, which parts of my life have I kept for myself? Which parts of my life have I kept for myself? Which parts of your life have you kept for yourself? And I'd encourage you Genesis is a book um, that, man, I could, this, these first chapters, I could be for here another two hours talking about Genesis 1 and 2, um, because there's just so much in there that we can't cover, and you'll see more the more you read it. So I'd encourage you, as we're going through this series, we're going to go through the whole book of Genesis, um, so just start reading it on your own. Read a chapter a day, or try to read a chapter a week, um, or try to just keep up with where we're at. Um, and, and the messages um, because you'll get to read it then you'll hear it again in service and you'll get to hear me talk about it and you'll get to just hear uh, and uh, see more in it. So as we close we see in this chapter God creating a home for us to dwell in for him to dwell in with us and it's a home that he blesses and next week we're going to get an up close and personal picture of what living in this home of what humanity and God living together in this home looks like. But we know that Jesus came because that home has been broken. And John 1, our first scripture reading, told us that Jesus actually was the word by which God created everything. And so Jesus was there at the beginning as well. And in fact, uh, Jesus then later um, comes into where he becomes flesh. He enters uh, our home so he can come and bring us back home to be with God. Because uh, everything started, remember, we said started with chaos and darkness and disorder. And God brought out of that chaos, out of that disorder, out of that darkness, he brought life and he formed it and he filled it. But then once we leave God, our lives go back into chaos, into disorder, into darkness. And then Jesus comes so he can recreate us, so he can create us anew and bring us out of the chaos and out of the darkness and out of the disorder once again. Let's pray.